there is a bone in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a bone in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. Sometimes I feel discouraged and think my work's in is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 1 in the ESV. Wow, we have made it. It has been such a long journey. But we a are very finally, long journey. We are finally here. <laughs> Again. <laughs> I, I would like to report that the weather outside is very sunny, and although that half my family uh, has a hurricane bearing down on them, uh, we here in Oklahoma are uh, doing pretty well, I'd say. That's good, especially since I'm in St. Louis. Yes. Oklahoma, like Balm in Gilead, Oklahoma, is, is up and running. That's good. Balm in Gilead, <laughs> Missouri is as well. <laughs> all right well now that my kids are pretending to clean and you have uh children out with grandma and yes. uh one sleeping yes i think we might be able to sneak and actually recording a podcast yes and for those of you <laughs> who have never attempted to record a podcast before and think hey yeah i could lock myself in a room and ramble on for 30 minutes and and produce a podcast false. a week that is false yes yes Yes, yeah. absolutely false. Um, so, yeah, so here we are. We are yeah. finally, finally recording this thing. No tornadoes to interrupt us. Hopefully no kids to interrupt us for a while. Fat chance. Fat All chance. right, so um, what are they listening to, Brian? That's a very good question. And also, who are they listening to? That is another very good question. It, it's probably very reminiscent to the to the time that the Mustang woke up early in the morning and thought to himself about the meaning of life, and then suddenly disappeared. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I would I would probably go back and give you a very long, detailed explanation of the history of philosophy, but that would definitely be be putting Descartes before the horse, so to speak. Yes. So to speak. <laughs> Descartes. So who are you, Brian? Descartes before the horse. Yes. Um, 
I am Brian. My name is my name is Brian. I uh, have been married for about twelve years, a little more. I have five daughters, three of which are with grandma, one of which is asleep upstairs, and the fifth is with uh, mommy at the hospital. There's more on that later, probably. Um, I have a degree in worship leadership from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, I have since, I guess, three years ago, I decided to forsake my fellow Baptists and become a Presbyterian. And uh, actually, I, I like to say that I realized about three years ago that I was a Presbyterian. And uh, there you go. Probably was a Presbyterian for quite a long time before before then. Um, currently at my local church, I am involved in the band. I play bass guitar, electric guitar, acoustic guitar. Sometimes I sing and lead while the music minister is out. Um, but throughout the last probably 15 years, I have done just about everything you can do in the music ministry, uh, including being a worship director at a church plant. Um, I've probably logged more hours on the bass guitar than any other instrument in the band. So I should probably be a lot better at the bass guitar than I am. But again, who, who would know who, who would know? <laughs> uh, currently I work at Chick-fil-A. Um, and, uh, my seminary degree was very helpful in getting that job. Someone asked me, uh, if I had to pass a, uh, the ordination process through the PCA before I could get the job at Chick-fil-A. But no, they, they took my, they took my seminary degree instead. Did they take it with no. pleasure? Or yes, without? it was, it was all their pleasure. It was all okay. their pleasure, but, gotcha. which oddly enough now is also mine. It's also my pleasure. <laughs> um, and in my free time, which I have very little, I like to write music. Uh, I also like to solve Rubik's Cubes and hopefully we'll be recording a lot more podcasts. Hi, my name is Grant Baker and I've been married for 16 years and got four kids here in Oklahoma and I'm a pastor's kid, but not with any formal seminary training uh, like my fellow compatriot here. But I did go to Christian school, pre-K, all the way through college. And so that probably counts for, for most of that uh, seminary training. All I need is Greek and Hebrew, right? Probably. I don't even have that. All right. Huh? I don't even have that. What? No. I thought you went to, I thought you went to seminary. I got an MA. Okay. Well, in between, uh, I uh, kind of lean Presbyterian, I'd say. I'm definitely feel leading toward that way, uh, so to speak, uh, but grew up in the Reformed Church in America and most recently was a member of an EFCA church and kind of here in Oklahoma, we've been to a Baptist church and also to a Acts 29 type church. So in the past, you know, just involvement with churches and whatnot, I've led Bible studies and volunteered in the nursery and of course the uh, tech booth as the expert slide advancer. Uh, just making sure that everybody knows the words to sing. Now, currently, I'm a user experience designer for Paycom. Uh, my views are my own, of course. Uh, I don't represent my employer at all in any way. But I do love design and 
probably not the artistic design that you're thinking of right now, more so the strategic type work. Uh, as far as hobbies, I like reading. I like long walks on the beach and, of course, collecting seashells. John Piper, John Piper would be, would be yes. very happy with that. Yeah, I, I know that he would. I know that he would. All right, so that is who we are. That answers that question. But you probably still have that lingering question as to why am I listening to this? What is a balm in Gilead? And uh, what does the future hold in store for me in, in the, this journey that we're going on? And I'd say those are all very good questions. Uh, in the book of Jeremiah, uh, the prophet said, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? And what he was referring to was uh, is the sinful nature of the people. It, they were uh, being punished for their sin, and they w wondered if there would ever be a time where they would have relief from that sin and from the punishment that comes with it. And of course, the answer to that is yes, there is a balm in Gilead, and uh, that was through Christ and his sacrifice, his uh, perfect life and his sinner's death that can bring a sweet salve to all of our sin natures and can save us and restore us with our proper relationship with God. And uh, back in the Civil War era in American history, uh, the slaves that were suffering for not their own sin, but just really for the sins of others that were enslaving them and making them do things that were horrible. Uh, there arose the tradition called the Negro spiritual, where they would sing songs of their future hope and deliverance, if not in this life, then in the next. And one of those songs was called, There is a Balm in Gilead. And you know, we just really... Uh, we just really grabbed on to that idea of, you know, we are still in the already, but not yet. We are still, you know, fighting, uh, our own sin natures. You know, we are still, uh, longing to see Christ return. And so that that's where, where the origin of that name, there is a bomb in Gilead comes from, um, very specifically what we are going to be talking about in this particular podcast is, about, um, it's a poor doctrine. This is going to be more of a discernment podcast, but poor doctrine that is coming out of um, the uh, contemporary Christian music industry or the CCM industry. And so, and so, both Grant and I, we have we have a very extensive history with, let's um, say, an extensive love hate relationship with contemporary Christian music. And uh, I'd say we, for me personally, I grew up really enjoying it. But as I got older, I started to learn and discern for myself what was good and what was not good about uh, about this this genre of, of music. And so one of the things that we both wanted to do was we wanted to start this podcast to analyze uh, trends in Christian music. We want to analyze um, themes that are coming out of it. We want to compare those themes with what we find in the Bible, and we want to um, offer suggestions 
for songs that might be better than other songs, better in the way that they handle scripture or in the message that they, uh, that they're trying to deliver. And, uh, so yeah, so that, that is what this podcast is going to be about. We, you know, we cling to that idea of, uh, of, you know, slavery and being a slave to sin and hoping for the day where, um, where all of our praise and worship will be untarnished by the stain of sin and how one day we will all be around the throne just saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole world is full of his glory. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I remember growing up and if it was branded Christian, it was good. You know, there was no kind of second idea or anything like that about uh, second thought about uh, anything. Um, if it was branded Christian, that's good. So I think growing up, I really uh, enjoyed it. Uh, CCM music. I really enjoyed all the uh, different trappings of of that world and i wouldn't say that all christian music is is bad or horrible absolutely not but what brian and i want to call attention to i would say are some influential songs pretend uh, potentially that 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 can have a negative effect by spreading uh, just ideas that are wrong that that don't measure up to the uh, scriptures. And so I think we want to hopefully help other listeners to see that and to debate with us and to interact with us a little bit on uh, kind of things that they see as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and, you know, for me, I I grew up uh, with the, uh, with the teaching that Christian music was good that secular music was bad and it was very hard line. And, uh, I was not allowed to listen to secular or mainstream music. I was told that those, those, those people who did were actively living in sin and right. I needed to pray for my friends to stop listening to secular music so that they could repent of that sin. I mean, it was just incredibly legalistic and it was, uh, not, uh, not right. And, and, and I don't, I, obviously, I don't hold to those views anymore. I, I uh, now hold to views that there are good Christian songs. There are good secular songs. There are bad Christian songs. There are bad secular songs. And when I say good and bad, I, I really do want to refer not to excellence, but to ultimate uh, spreading of truth and morality. Um, that something is only good if it is... Uh, if it is absolutely propagating the message of the gospel, uh, only God is good. Therefore, only songs that reflect God are good. And I think that secular songs can do that better than some Christian songs. And uh, I think that people, yeah, they see the label Christian and they automatically think good. Uh, not necessarily quality, as I said, but morality. If it has the name Christian, then it's obviously good. And, uh, and, and I want to state also that I pretty much only listen to Christian music. Uh, and I wanted to state that there are reasons why I, I choose to only listen to Christian music. Um, and say the three main reasons. One, um, I like to listen to music uh, with my brain on. And by that, I mean, I, I like to listen to it critically. I, I enjoy 
listening to it uh, with the with the idea of discerning what I'm listening to, so I can help teach my kids why the songs aren't uh, good or why they are good. Uh, but I also don't really want to listen to secular top forties music because most of it is bad morally. Uh, I, I find myself turning it off way more often than not, just because I'm disgusted by it. Um, not to say that there's, that there aren't good secular songs. There are, uh, but I find myself, if I'm wanting to listen to something not Christian, that I'm usually listening to nineties music because it was a lot tamer back in the nineties than it is now. Um, but I'd say the third reason why I tend to listen to Christian music, especially on the radio, I'm, I'm one of those old fogies who still listens to the radio. And uh, it, most Christian radio stations are user-funded and so uh, are listener-supported, as they would say. So there's not any commercials. So I can be driving the 15 minutes from my house <laughs> to my work and actually listen to like five songs instead of listening to 14 minutes of a commercial and half of one song. That happens when you listen to uh, something that is not uh, listener-supported. So three reasons why I still listen to Christian music. Uh, the main reason, that first reason about, about the discernment, is really why we decided to make this podcast. I, I enjoy listening and discerning to uh, Christian music, and I wanted to share that with uh, fellow believers who also want to listen to Christian music but find themselves in the same place that we do. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, uh, beyond being just leaders in the back seat, uh, Christian music, some of it is quite good. You know, uh, I'm thinking of several now, but maybe we'll save those for the, the suggestions at yeah. the end of the show. But uh, there, there's a lot of great music out there that, that goes beyond even just contemporary Christian music. Think back to Bach or mm -hmm. uh, people like that who were writing music for the church uh, back, you know, centuries ago. And that music continues today um, to glorify God and, or it can. And yeah. uh, so did, did you know that I, that Bach like signed that Bach signed all of his compositions with uh, SDG at the bottom of each page? Tell me what SDG means. I mean, Soli Deo Gloria. Man, which... that sounds like really familiar. Yes. yes. I think you and I have a shirt that says something like that. on. We it. absolutely both do. Uh, we <laughs> we both discovered. own a shirt that says Soli Deo Gloria. It also says Sola Fide, Sola Gratia, Solus uh, Christus, and uh, Sola Scriptura, which we, are known as the... We believe all those. We, we do. We affirm all five of those. Um, those were the five pillars of the Reformation back... 500 years ago uh, that uh, Christ alone saves us of our sin by grace alone, through faith alone, according to the scripture alone, and for the glory of God alone. And so Bach uh, believed along those, those lines as well, and he dedicated all of his songs to the glory of God alone. Yeah. When I see stuff like that or hear stuff like that, that helps me want to uh, live similarly, you know, Absolutely. I'd say that's a, that's a main reason, um, for listening to Christian music. Absolutely. Um, and something that I did want to, to talk about, about the Christian music industry is that, um, 
contrary to probably popular belief, the head honchos for all uh, for for the Christian music industry, uh, they're not Christians. And uh, what I know, right? Um, Now, that isn't to say that there aren't Christians that are high up in the Christian music industry that we would hope that all of the people writing these songs are Christians. We would hope that all of the people producing the songs and publishing the songs are Christians. But typically the people who pay the paychecks for all of those people um, are not Christians. Uh, Christian labels are very small. And this isn't just something for Christian labels, but all small labels are owned by a larger label. Uh, that's the way that the Christian, or that's the way the music industry works. Is that um, small labels only have the power to do something because they're being essentially funded by larger labels. Uh, the music industry is very small in, in in that sort of respect. The same small group of people are more or less calling all of the shots for all of the music industry, and those people care first and foremost about the bottom line. And this is, um, and this isn't a bad thing. Uh, and, and for, you know, the long and short of it, it's not a bad thing for business people to be more concerned about the business aspect of their business. Um, if they cared about something else, if they made decisions that would lead to uh, a smaller uh, bottom line, they would go out of business and we wouldn't have the music at all. And so this idea that um, that music is run and owned largely by non-Christians, it's just part of, it's, it's part of the nature of the beast. And uh, I'd say the thing that makes this tricky is these people that care about the bottom line, they want songs published that are going to make them more money. They want songs published that are going to uh, have a broader reach that are going to appeal to more people that are going to be popular. That's why it's called pop music. It's popular music. It's music that appeals to the widest uh, margin of people possible. And I would say the problem with that in Christianity is that Christianity, by definition, is unpopular. And uh, by that I mean that Jesus said, I am coming to bring a sword, not to bring peace. He said, if you want to follow me, you must first hate your father and your mother. Uh, he, he said things that um, would get him kicked off of Facebook and Twitter. And people forget that. They, they want to get this idea of Jesus in their minds that he loved everyone and that he did everything to gain the most followers possible. But he didn't. Uh, he he does he does love everyone. I'm gonna make sure to say that. But I was gonna press you on that in yes, a minute here. Yeah. Um, but he he does not. He didn't never never said things to people that they wanted him to say. Uh, he often said things that made people feel very uncomfortable. But while it made some people feel uncomfortable, it answered so many questions for other people. It opened their eyes to see who he was and who they were and and ultimately you know what he said was very unpopular physically but it was very by definition popular spiritually um 
you know, he he did not promise anything earthly. People were hoping for a Messiah who was going to come and destroy Rome and set an earthly kingdom, but he did not. He died. He was murdered by the Roman government so that uh, he could save some to an eternal spiritual kingdom. And so we must forsake all that we have here on earth to follow him so that we can gain uh, immeasurable riches in the hereafter. And uh, we don't, and I'd say that the best gift, the best prize that we could ever hope to achieve is just being in the presence of God himself and being able to fall down and worship him. And so this idea of popular uh, Christian music by definition is an oxymoron. And so for a, uh, for Christian music, you're either going to uh, pursue popularity and have to um, sacrifice like the, the depths of the riches of the Christian doctrine, or you're going to have to sacrifice popularity in order to keep, you know, that depth of the riches of the uh, Christian doctrine. So, a popular Christian song is, or a Christian, all Christian music is either not popular or not Christian. And so you can't actually have any truly popular Christian music. Uh, and that this is definitely formulaic. And this is definitely a philosophical idea. Uh, that isn't to say that God couldn't take an incredibly well-written, gospel-rich song and use it broadly he has uh he, he has so, so what you're saying here is mm-hmm. that uh switchfoot <laughs> is not christian because there were popular i mean that's in, in a lot of respects yeah and, and and i say this saying switchfoot is my absolute favorite band of all time but their songs aren't christian they are through the christian worldview they are through the christian lens but they he doesn't explicitly talk about Christ dying for our sins and and really any of his songs. Uh, He mentions God and he mentions Christ in some of his songs, but those songs are uh, some of his lesser popular songs. Uh, John Foreman, uh, he has two different solo projects where he goes a whole lot deeper into his faith in these projects but no one's ever heard of these projects unless you're a huge fan of John Foreman and Switchfoot. And so his popular, his most popular songs are, um, I'd say Dare You To Move is first and foremost, his most popular, most successful song, which is not Christian. It maybe is moralistic. It, it, it is philosophic. It, it's calling you to, to get up and, and to move, but he's not, He's describing a broken, fallen world, but he's not offering any sort of solution. Um, I'd say his, his next most famous song is uh, called Meant to Live, which is still very similar. It's uh, We Were Meant to Live for So Much More. It's, it's saying again, there is something else that's out there that we should strive to, but it doesn't, it doesn't answer that question. Um, and I'd say probably his third most famous song is... Uh, is called Mess of Me, which is on uh, the Hello Hurricane album. And that one, again, it's basically saying, I am the result of my own problem. But he, again, doesn't really offer 
the answer to those. He has other songs where he does offer answers to them. But again, like I said, uh, those are less popular. So his more popular songs keep it more vague. And his less popular songs kind of give some more of the answers. Um, but I, I also am not 100% sure on where John Foreman stands Theologically speaking, I, I do believe he's a Christian. I do believe that he loves Jesus, that he works for the gospel. But I, mean, I think that there are a lot of nuances to his beliefs that uh, do not line up with my own. So it sounds like you're driving a stake between Christian mm-hmm. and Christian informed songs. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's. I'd say we're going to do a show on this uh, probably like episode five or six, where I I do believe there are five different driving types of songs. And um, it's, it's not just a subtle difference between uh, Christian and secular, but I believe that there are five very specific types of songs. Uh, One would be um, praise and worship, which is songs specifically written to be sung in the church. And we're going to talk, a whole lot about praise and worship songs in episodes to follow. Uh, the second would be um, Christian songs, songs that have a very overtly Christian message, uh, but are not necessarily meant to be sung in a church for congregational worship. The third would be like what you said, they are informed by Christianity. They are uh, from Christians, uh, not necessarily for Christians they're for everyone, but they are through the Christian worldview. They pose very specific questions. They answer them from time to time, but they are, um, but they do not offer up answers contrary to what the Bible teaches. I'd say the fourth type are um, songs that are not written from the Christian worldview that are written by people not claiming to be Christians, but that still address those same questions. They still ask the same questions. Uh, They might give answers that are contrary to what the Bible says, um, they may not give any answers at all, uh, but they, um, but they still address those heart issues of fallen condition and um, the need for uh, something more. And then the fifth type of song are those that revel in sin, that glorify sin, that um, that just completely ignore Christ altogether. They might ignore, they may not ignore him. They may call him out as being wrong. You know, just all sorts of things like that. And, and I find that particular type of music to be completely unhelpful, uh, completely uh, bad. And that's kind of, those are the type of songs that gave secular music that sort of bad reputation uh, that drove our parents to tell us that it was sinful to listen to it. Because I, I just don't think that we can get anything good out of that. But um, so I'd say Switchfoot falls mostly into that third category of music. They are songs uh, from the Christian perspective, from the Christian worldview, that talk about spiritual matters that answer some, but mostly that just, you know, they just are there to help you. Uh, they're for entertainment most, uh, but they're but they're there philosophic to, um, to at least get you thinking about those particular issues. So there's some songs that are great to listen to, mm-hmm. but there are some songs that are more appropriate for like a church setting versus listening to in the car versus listening to um, with, with friends or anything like that. There's, 
yeah, song ab- for every occasion. Absolutely. And, and I'd say that, um, that one of the things that really led us to want to do this particular podcast uh, has to do with the difference between that first type and that second type. Yes, there are songs that are written to be sung in church. And yes, there are songs that are meant to be enjoyed, that are meant for entertainment, uh, but that are meant to be very overtly Christian, that are meant to glorify God, that are meant to praise him, but that aren't meant, but they're meant to do it privately, you know, uh, private worship songs or, um, you know, there's heartfelt confession from me to God or from, uh, or for me to encourage those that are listening to it, but that aren't again, meant for congregational worship. And, uh, and I'd say that over the last decade, especially <clears throat> the line between those two songs has become incredibly blurred. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, back in 2010, there were very few songs that were played on the radio that were also heard in church. And now it seems like every song that's on the radio is fair game for church. Oh, right. I mean, like, it feels like that we're listening to the radio and you're almost getting kind of hearing the songs and then the worship leader maybe chooses those songs because everybody knows them. Right. Uh, and here they are playing them on Sunday morning too. And that because everyone knows them is, is really one of the main reasons why, why these songs are being chosen. I mean, I've, I've talked extensively with worship leaders who say, um, I really want to pick songs that my church already knows. So I pick songs from the radio because they already know them, hoping that because they know them, they will sing them. But what ends up happening a lot of times is that because uh, these songs are performance songs on the radio, uh, the people in the congregation are used to just listening to them. And so they just listen to them when they're sung in church and they don't get up and they don't sing them, even though they know it, they still choose not to sing because that's kind of what they're used to in their car. Um, which is this incredibly sad thing because congregational worship is meant to be congregational. It's meant to be everyone singing with one voice to our God together. That's the whole point of singing in church is to sing together as one voice to God. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I know you've read through it already, but I'm, I'm still working my way through the Getty Sing mm-hmm. uh, book. And they talk, obviously, the whole book is about that. And there are so many important aspects to singing congregationally, uh, getting people into one mind, getting people uh, sharing these beliefs among each other right. and singing them to each other, uh, as well as, of course, to God is helpful in our, in our spiritual formation. And so I think it's even more critical that we take a critical approach to what doctrine are we singing about? What doctrine are we teaching ourselves? Are we uh, saying to each other uh, in these songs? Right. Is it it worthy? Is it beautiful? Is it, is it, is it worth our, worth, worth our worship? Right. And, uh, and the argument that I want to make is if there's no such thing as actual popular Christian music, then the music that's on the radio is going to be a lot less Christian because it's going to be a lot more popular. And so if, uh, and so in order to get on the radio, it has to shed these ideas of sin and of guilt and, 
and of sacrifice and of atonement. And it's going to have more things that are vague. Um, we're going to talk about this quite a lot, but there is a trend in, in the Christian music where they take the word sin and essentially replace it with the word fear. Uh, just go and listen to the Christian radio station. Count how many times in one hour you hear the word fear versus how what's many the, times you hear the word sin. What's the problem with that, though? I mean, fear I, is something that uh, we fear, should be. Right. Fear is absolutely something that is legitimate. That is um, something that we struggle with. And, uh, but it's a vague external. What I mean by that is when I just say fear, like, and I don't describe it at all. Fear is this kind of this looming monster over me that is undefined, uh, that um, that doesn't uh, that has this I guess this evil uh, morality to it just from the context, but it create it makes me the victim. If I need my fear removed, then I am the victim of my own fear. Whereas sin is a concrete internal. My sin is something that I do. Uh, on my own, that is absolute rejection of who God is and what God wants. And so when I take the word uh, sin, which puts me as the offender and, uh, and replace it with the word fear, that puts me as the victim. And so it, it, will, it, can, uh, it can give a counter gospel message. And uh, that doesn't mean that fear should be avoided. But fear should be uh, defined. Um, I, I actually like the word shame better than fear because shame or doubt, uh, shame and doubt, those are more defined. Uh, they're not 100% defined, but doubt would be the fear of losing my salvation or the fear of um, that God doesn't love me. Uh, shame would be the fear that uh, that I get from being caught or that I'm afraid that I'm afraid of getting caught, uh, which are, which are both, you know, those are both more defined and those are both, both more related to what Christianity is. Whereas fear, um, as its own thing, isn't like, there are some fears that are good. Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That fear is very good. Uh, if I didn't fear fire, then I would run into a burning building and die. If I didn't fear water, then I would jump into a lake and die. If I didn't fear heights, I would walk off a cliff and die. Um, God gives us those fears to help us learn about the power and about the majesty of the object of which I am afraid so that I can better respect it and that I can better uh, give it the glory that it's due. If that sounds familiar, that's what the fear of the Lord is. Uh, the Lord has more power to destroy than anything else. And if we do not fear him, then it will be like walking off a cliff or into a fire or uh, drowning in a lake. And uh, so go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, so like one of the most popular songs has got to be like Oceans by Hillsong United, right? Right. And that talks um, it kind of references the story of Peter in the boat, you know, right. when Jesus comes to them on the water. They think he's a ghost. No, I'm really Jesus. Peter's like, Hey, if you're Jesus, you know, let me come out to you in the right. water. Right. And that particular song, I mean, talks a lot about, uh, oh, oh it does mention fear. I mean, it mm -hmm. like, it, 
it says things like, uh, you know, when, where feet. Yeah, when the fear. Yeah, where feet me. may fail and fear surrounds me. Yeah. yeah, and so is that kind of what you're talking about there? That's exactly what I'm talking about. When feet may fear and feel and fear surrounds me. Where feet may fail and fear surrounds me. Uh, that is this, this passing mention of, of fear. Uh, but you know, if God. Had, or if Jesus had chosen to only remove Peter's fear of the water and the waves, Peter would have gotten out of the boat and sank and died. Um, if God had just removed David's fear of Goliath, he would have marched right up to Goliath and died. And so God does so much more than take away our fears. He, he gives us a boldness to proclaim him for who he is, uh, despite who we are. Uh, God gives us the desire to battle our own sin. And, um, and he does this through, you know, taking away our, uh, being owned by sin. You know, we are slaves of sin, but God makes us instead slaves of righteousness. And, you know, these are very important concepts that get ignored in a lot of, of, of music. And, uh, and, you know, we will, we will talk a whole lot about this for a whole long time. That's really the center of what this podcast is about. Uh, I do want to go back to the song Oceans. Uh, Oceans uh, was a very interesting song. It came out, I think it's like either late 2011 uh, or sometime around then, but it, uh, I've got it written down and I'll, uh, in a future episode, we'll talk more about this, but it was on billboard for is on the top 50 Christian songs on billboard for over three years. It was 2013. It looks like 2013. So late 2012, yeah. late 2012, it hit the number one spot. It was in the number one spot for 61 weeks. I don't know if those are 61 unbroken weeks, probably not, but it was, but it was 61 weeks. Uh, it was in the number one slot on the, on more the than a charts. year, more than a year. It holds the record for being uh, for most weeks on the number one slot on the Christian charts. Um, and there's just something about that, you know, that, that song, uh, there's something about why that song was uh, so popular but it was at a very pivotal time. And I think that there was a lot of songs in the wake of that song uh, sought to be just like ocean and sought to do the same thing and sought to be, um, it kind of changed the definition of how a song was successful. A song are, you, are you talking like musically here, lyrically yeah. uh, altogether? Uh, altogether. Um, that it kind of changed the definition of what it meant to be successful in the Christian world. Uh, that a song um, not only, had to be on the radio, but also had to be in church. And because Oceans is a praise and worship song. The song was written to be sung in church, but it gained this popularity on the radio that had never been seen before uh, and that has not been seen since. And, uh, and so it is my theory that this song was a very pivotal song in how songs are constructed so that now songs are written to try to hit both markets. They try to be on the radio and in church. So many of the songs that are on the radio could be done in church. Uh, should be is a different question, but could be done in church. A lot of songs could be. Um, 
So do you think it opened up the possibility of what songs are acceptable in church or opened up the possibility for what songs become number one hits on the radio? I'd say yes. I'd say that there was a shift in both directions. Um, that the songs that people wanted to hear on the radio were songs that could also be done in church. And the songs that were being written for the radio were also being written with church in mind. And the songs that were written for church were also written with the radio in mind. And it just created this culture of this is what a, a Christian song is now. Um, but what this does, uh, so let's let's talk about, let's go back to Switchfoot and back to these other bands um, that just write music. Now, if the if new bands just want to break into the music, they have to write to also possibly get uh, sung in church. And so, uh, you know, they may be able to write a really good song. They may be really, really stinking good at writing songs, but they may know nothing about theology. They may know nothing about Christianity. They may be brand new Christians. They may not actually even be Christians, but uh, but now they're writing music that is meant to be sung in church because that's how you get a successful song. And so that has created this flood of songs that are now um, under consideration for being sung in churches that have absolutely no business setting foot in the church because they either proclaim a gospel that's counter to what the gospel actually is, or they just aren't, uh, there's not meant to be in the church. Uh, I, I heard a story once about um, this song uh, by For King and Country called Priceless being sung in a church service. This is a song that they wrote to their little sister to help her with her self-esteem. And so the song huh. is from two brothers to their sister about how she is priceless. And it has, I mean, it's from the Christian perspective, from the Christian worldview, but it has no business being sung as a, as a worship song, either from God's perspective to his church or from the church to God. I mean, it's just all sorts of wrong. It, you might as well take a journey song and sing it to God because it's the exact same thing. They didn't write it for God. They didn't write it addressing God. They wrote it addressing their little sister. And so, uh, yeah, so that opens the door to that. Um, by the way, you want to know what the second most popular Christian song of all time was as far as being number one on the radio and on the charts. Yeah. What's that, man? There must be something in the water by Carrie Underwood. <laughs> Jesus so, take the wheel. Jesus take the wheel. No, her other song. Yeah. Uh, there uh. must be something in the water uh, was sung uh, at passion one year. I need to look up what year that was, but she sang it at passion and so because of that, I think it like started to hit the Christian radio stations and the Christian charts and became the second most popular song to ever uh, hit the number one. or the, So it had the number one slot for the second longest amount of time, uh, just under Oceans. Uh, that song, by the way, when, you're, when you think of it as being written by a Christian for the non-Christian world to enjoy, she has some really good stuff in it. It's it. I I'm a fan of the song for what it is and for what it was meant to be, but it has no business being in the church, no business being sung in, by the congregation of people trying to praise their, their God and savior. And, uh, it's just, that's kind of where, uh, that's kind of where we are right now in, uh, 
in, in that scheme of things as far as like the state of the the music and church the uh pathway to success for christian music is step one write a worship song step two get it sung or perform it at a major conference Mm -hmm. step three try to sell it now (laughs) right right and um and this is absolutely not uh joking if you can get chris tomlin to sing your song you've made it Um, oh okay so like he did, so it's not just that you're recording it. You gotta you just write the song and just have somebody popular sing it for you, and then yeah. that's your pathway. Uh, there's a story once where uh, Tomlin was out touring and went to like an open mic night. At, I think it was a faith based open mic night, and someone was singing the song that they wrote, uh, "God of This City," and he heard it, he liked it, he asked if he could sing it, and they said yes, and so he sang it. And that song is now, it became pretty popular. Um, double platinum. I, I have no idea if it was double platinum. It might uh, have been. Just teasing. But, it, it, <laughs> but, no but you know, God of the City, you've heard the song. Um, sure. If Chris Tomlin hadn't walked in to that open mic night that night, you wouldn't have heard that song. It's as simple as that. Um, I mean, think about like John Mark McMillan. Uh, you probably would never have heard of John Mark McMillan if it wasn't for David Crowder singing how he loves and changing the line sloppy wet kiss to unforeseen kiss and creating the whatever drama came about that um <laughs> i wonder if that actually helped to sell more records i've, I've got no idea wonder. yeah or more or airplay something or airplay. yeah and so um so that was something as well um i i know of a story of uh there's an up-and-coming singer who is uh, i'll reveal more of the story later but there's an up-and-coming singer who was recording his first album someone came up to him and said hey there's a song we're trying to get someone to sing would you be interested in it song was good good father and so um and so by the time that this reached uh the friend of mine he uh the song had already been chosen by uh tomlin and he'd already recorded it but you know it was still it hadn't been released yet. And so they're still trying to find someone to sing this song, asking basically everyone, including someone who had no name, who uh, was recording his first album, but Tomlin sang it. And so now we all know it. Yeah. Well, especially on father's day, especially on father's day, which is yeah. the most appropriate time to uh, sing <laughs> be a good father. Did you see that link I sent you? And about the top five songs. Yeah, like the top five songs, but then in the article itself, uh, put out by Faith Life Proclaim, they make Logos mm-hmm. Bible software and stuff like that, right? They also make this uh, slide advancing program called Proclaim, and I guess they track how many songs are done on Sunday morning. And normally, about 200 churches who have Proclaim software do Good Good Father. But on Father's Day weekend, and they even showed like this little chart, like Father's Day weekend, man, that jumps up to like 700, That's which great. I got to imagine is representing at least 90% of all churches uh, that, that use the software. It, it's at least probably like a good enough sample size to that's probably going to also have happened to those who use uh, other programs um, like Song Select or things like that but yeah 
sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Good, good father. Yeah. That's. that's now I got to say most churches I've been to all use pro presenter. Yeah. I've not met anybody yet who uses proclaim, but I've, I've downloaded before. It looks pretty cool. I got to say, and plus I use Logos Bible software. So I, <laughs> I like it from that standpoint too. But anyway, we're not talking about software today. No, we're talking about us. We are talking well, about us. Not about us, but about our <laughs> relationship, our history. Right. I could say. And, and so we've we've kind of we've introduced ourselves. We've kind of introduced what this podcast is going to be about. But now I want to try to connect those two together. I want to explain why I care so much about this. Um, also, I, I want to throw this out uh, as well. You and I have each wrestled over these issues that we're going to go into great detail about um, for years. I mean, it, it probably, I mean, I probably had a solid like three to five years of really, really seriously questioning things. Uh, and I would jump back and forth, back and forth until finally I hit what is a uh, commonly referred to as the cage stage, which is where you basically <laughs> snap mentally and then you try to explain and convince everyone that you meet in a 30 minute conversation, everything that you've wrestled through over the last five years. And, uh, and so I thankfully am out of the cage stage. Uh, I am no longer trying to convince you in 30 minutes, but I will try to take six years and go through this process and, uh, try to address each thing little by little. And, uh, when I say six years, uh, I, I, I really mean it. Uh, you and I, we have committed ourselves to recording and releasing 152 episodes. This is episode one. Uh, we'll try to record them. It's a long journey. I know. It's going to be a long journey. Uh, <laughs> going to uh, record, try to record four at a time, release them every two weeks. So you won't hear us again for two weeks. And uh, after that... It'll be another two weeks for you hear us again. Uh, and so long, so on and so forth until we hit that 152 that episode. Magical. That magical 152, 152 episodes. Yeah, actually, I'm just kidding. There's nothing magical. There's nothing magical nothing about magical it. Nothing magical about 152. It mostly has to do with if you're recording four at a time, then you'll hit 150 in the middle of a four-episode cluster, and we'll run out of psalms. And... Uh, <laughs> And so that was part of it. Another part of it is that we actually have like an outline that we have almost completely filled out. So I, I have almost six years of content already outlined. Um, we very well might re start releasing them sooner, uh, like every like releasing two and then waiting a week, releasing two, waiting a week. But we'll we'll see. We'll see how it, how it goes. Uh, All right. But. Um, yeah, so I want to tie in you know, who I am with why I want to, uh, with why I care so much about this. Um, I was I was born into a, a Christian family, and uh, and I've already mentioned that you know I had that um, installation very early on that secular music is bad, Christian music is good, and I had a lot of musical influence on my life uh, as a child. I was in choir. I was in praise band. I had started learning guitar when I was in seventh grade. I was voted president of my youth choir my senior year in high school. Um, but I had a very, say I'd have a, a very charismatic view of spirit 
and a very legalistic view of truth. Uh, and so these these views of spirit and truth were very uh, almost opposed to one another. Um, I became very pharisaical and I really valued how other people looked at me and how other people saw me as a rule follower. And, um, but at the same time, like I I really thought that in order to have a, a good experience, a good worship experience, you had to almost like magically feel God. Um, like I remember being in a small group and we were singing I remember like lowering one of my shoulders as if I was trying to conjure up the feeling that Jesus had his hand on my shoulder. Um, so, Oh wow. Yeah. So like Bethel music type stuff. Yeah. Like Bethel music type, uh, type stuff. I I was once asked to go on a mission trip and, uh, and I thought, you know, I really want to go on this mission trip. I prayed. I felt like it was a good thing. Uh, but I knew, uh, that if I was going to convince my mom, that I felt like God wanted me to go, I had to like show her a sign. And so I told her that I was looking at my alarm clock, which is like a digital alarm clock. And when I closed my eyes, it spelled out the word go. Like how you, like if you look at a clock and close your eyes, you still kind of see the numbers for a second. Sure. Yeah. I told her that. And so I was like, no question asked. That is a sign from God. You were going on this mission trip. So I do think I was supposed to go. I do think they got the Blues Brothers go. must have been a very yes. interesting movie for you. I did not watch the Blues Brothers until much later, but yeah, I mean it's kind of that 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 thought. Um, when I was a, uh, I guess late high school, I decided I wanted to be a music minister. That was something that I really wanted to do. It was something I felt God wanted me to do. Um, I had no reason to doubt that God wanted me to do that. Um, but my senior year of high school, things got a little weird. We had a pastor that actually ended up driving like every other staff member away. And, oh, um, yeah. And so as a result, um, the music minister left, the youth minister left. And these are these two guys that are really heavily influential in, in training me to go, uh, pursue this music ministry. Um, and so the guy that came in, the, the, the new music minister, or the new uh, youth minister, uh, basically built a student praise band. Like we had this long running tradition where there was always a senior and a junior that kind of co-led the band. And the senior trained the junior to take over for the next year. And mm-hmm. I was the junior my junior year. But then the, my senior year, we had a new youth pastor. He changed it to where the guy that was leading the band was the son of the guy that led the adult band. Right. Uh, yeah. And so I was really upset about that and I, uh, I was really hurt by that, but I kind of realized the more that things went on that what I really was hurt by was I wasn't going to be the person standing on stage that everyone saw being the holy guy that's leading the, the, the church. Mm. And, uh, and so I, I really realized that that was a huge driving factor in me wanting to be uh, a music minister I wanted to be the guy on stage with a guitar that everyone saw. And so I decided not to go to the college that trained you to be a music minister. I decided not to pursue music ministry uh, early on in college. And uh, so I got a degree in econ finance and, uh, and a minor in English, which was actually 
a really good thing for me to do because there is a girl who was a her major in English that I got to take a lot of classes with, and now we're married and have five daughters, and it's wonderful. Well, I guess that worked out. It really, really, really did. Um, <laughs> but one of the things about college that really helped me in my music uh, life was that I that was when I really learned that secular music wasn't bad by default and that Christian music wasn't good by default. There were some Christian bands I had liked in high school that I realized were just awful, uh, just excellence-wise. But there are also some secular songs that were. I, I really enjoyed. Um, I would say that uh, Garage Band and uh, Guitar Hero, those video games, uh, introduced me to more songs than I had previously ever been introduced to. Sure. And... Uh, uh, oddly enough, there was a, a Christian parody band that I was really, really big into in uh, in high school. It was like Weird Al, but they would take secular music and give them Christian lyrics. And oh, who was that? Apologetics with an X. Yes, with an X. Yeah, and yes. uh, and so I there's them. there's still a lot of. I think songs. my sister really liked them. Yeah, that that was the band I was referring to earlier about a Christian band that wasn't very good, an excellent standpoint, but. Um, I mean, there's still some songs today where they'll like, I'll start hearing it and I'm like, I don't know the words to this song. I just know the stupid fake words. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so that, that, so college was really big on kind of introducing me and broadening my perspective, really tearing down that, that uh, lie that Christian music was good by default and the second music was bad by default. Um, and after college, uh, my wife and I moved to Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, we got married right before our senior year. So we, uh, right after we graduated, we moved to Boston. And you know what? They don't have Christian radio in, uh, in Boston, Massachusetts. What? And, it's a major metropolis. I know, right? And so uh, they have a lot of Pearl Jam and Coldplay. Coldplay was, was ridiculously popular at this time. Like It was around the time that Viva La Vida came out. Mm, and mm-hmm. uh and so Coldplay was all over the place the beastie boys i really heard a lot of beastie boys while i was up there not a fan i'm just gonna say uh <laughs> but i heard a lot of beastie boys uh but I, I became a pretty big fan of pearl jam and Coldplay and the killers and uh this is the first place i was actually really exposed to johnny cash for the first time oh he's he's christian music though <laughs> yeah uh but anyway oh, he was a okay. christian okay we'll talk yeah we'll talk his <laughs> but like his early stuff um before he was a christian but it's funny that i had to move all the way to boston massachusetts to learn about a guy who grew up less than an hour from where my hometown is um <laughs> and so that's that was fun um then uh one of the things that was really rough was I had a brand new spanking degree in econ and finance, moved to Boston, Massachusetts. There's a whole lot of jobs in econ and finance. Yeah. And three months later, the housing market crashed and all of these people were getting fired left and right with econ degrees. Ooh. And no one was hiring anything uh, in that field. And if a job did pop up, then people who had 20 plus years of experience were applying for it. And so I never used my econ degree. Um, couldn't even get a job as a bank teller. Uh, it was just, Oof. it was rough. So I, I rolled burritos and I uh, 
we lived off of student loans basically and um, really started asking big questions like, you know, why am I here? Like I knew why God moved us, my wife, my wife and I to Boston. Uh, my wife got into an incredibly good MFA, Masters of Fine Arts program. Nice. She, she was studying under two former U.S. poet laureates, um, which the Library of Congress every year declares who they think is the best poet of the year and right. uh, and gives them that award. And so she had two of those poets as her teachers. Um, and it was a one-year terminal degree. So after one year, she could yeah. teach college. And uh, so we were there, and we knew that, that was where we were supposed to be. But I didn't know why I was there. Like, why did I have to struggle through this? Why did I have to um, kind of be knocked down a peg? You know, why did I have to uh, endure the recession firsthand? You know, what? why? And um, I really started talking with my pastor we, we went to a church plant that was almost entirely made up of Arkansas residents, uh, which is fun because <laughs> I'm from Arkansas. It's wild. And uh, yeah, one of the other couples that were in the, uh, that were in this church, which is how we found out about it, were married in the same church building that Renee and I had gotten married in. Um, no way. Yeah. All the way there in Boston, huh? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you were married in Arkansas. We were married in Arkansas. And so, you know, our church was built. They're one of the first couples to get married in this church. And when we moved to Boston, my mom's like, Hey, you should look up Ross and Amanda. And, uh, cause they're, they're from Arkansas. They're from Jonesboro. You should look them up. And so we did became very good friends. And so that's kind of how that happened. Um, but, uh, my pastor, he would talk with me a lot about, you know, people that, uh, that wrestle with these questions that, that wrestle with these deeper meanings, especially those that have, a really strong knowledge of the scriptures and, and that have at one point in their life considered going into the ministry, you know, this journey that you're on is not unique. Uh, most people end up in seminary after they're on a journey like this. And so looked into Southern seminary, um, got in and, uh, planned on moving. So we did, we got to, we moved to Louisville, Kentucky and, um, uh, lived there for uh, about three years, three and a half years. Uh, started working at a small country church as a music minister. Really, just kind of it's where I really learned how to practice guitar. Um, that playing the guitar for thirty minutes once a month was not good, but playing. Well, oh, that doesn't count as practice. No, playing for forty-five okay. minutes every day uh, is how you get good at guitar, and it's how you gotcha. start learning things like how to transpose in your head and how to uh, play in different keys. And um, yeah, so that, that was, that was a really good experience for me. Um, we had our first kid while we were there and it was really, it was a really hard time financially on us. Um, but then my wife, uh, she got a very interesting, uh, she got a very interesting Facebook message from the, a dean of arts and sciences from our uh, from Union University where we both went to college. He basically mm-hmm. said, "Hey, would you be interested in applying for a creative writing instructor position at a small Christian liberal arts school in in Georgia?" And she was like, "Would I be interested in pursuing my dream job?" Yes. So uh <laughs> so she sent in her application, she got interviewed immediately, got hired basically on the spot. 
Um, wow. Yeah, so we ended up moving to Georgia. In Georgia, uh, we uh, went to what we very, very later found out was a 1689 Reformed Baptist Church. Uh, when we kind of saw it as this is the, the coolest Baptist church I've ever been to. Like this is exactly what we what we want in a church. This is exactly the sort of church government that we would like. You know, the they they don't look at tradition uh, for how to answer questions. They look at the Bible. You know, they they aren't mm. just uh, doing things because we've always done it that way. They they answer every question with, well, what does the Bible say? Um, mm-hmm. And so this was just it was it was a bomb, is what it was, <laughs> and. Uh, and so, you know, later, uh, I, I didn't even know what 1689 was. I didn't know what the London Baptist Confession was. I didn't know mm-hmm. what the Westminster Confession was. I didn't know any of this stuff. I just knew Southern Baptist is what I always have been. It's what I always will be. <laughs> and, um, and this church was great. Uh, we were there for three years. Uh, had our second child. Had our third child. Our our didn't have our third child. We, uh, my wife got pregnant with her third child, and we realized that me working nights at a library with her working days at a school just wasn't going to work. So we ended up moving back to my hometown uh, where we had our third child and our fourth child. And uh, and one of the things that we really want to do getting back into my musical journey is when we moved to uh, back to Arkansas, I contacted the music minister at my parents' church and I said, Hey, this is what I want to do. I have a degree in worship leadership, but I don't have a whole lot of experience. I would love to get just some experience. I would love to you know, get plugged into one of your bands and to get just some, some chances to lead every once in a while, just so I can get enough experience on my resume. So then I can either be sent out in a church plant or, you know, that's just, what I'd like to do right now. And he said, that's a great idea uh, that he'll get me in touch with one of their music ministers. Um, he actually said, you know, we've got this guy, Zach. Uh, and uh, he, let me get in touch with him and uh, we'll, we'll get you plugged into his band. So uh, that was, that was the the plan started. I moved to Jonesboro, got a really, really low paying job at a hospital where my dad worked. And um, so I just started volunteering. Uh, met with Zach. Um, it was we had this actually it's really interesting moment where uh, one of the first meetings I had with him was in his office, uh, and I uh, played some of my songs I'd written, which weren't very good, but he was very gracious to listen to them, and uh, I listened to some of his songs that he wrote, which I thought were pretty cool. And, uh, his were definitely a lot more produced than mine. And, uh, so I got involved in the band. He, they had this, uh, this process where the first, you first had an interview and then you went to a practice where you just listened. You just put on a set of headphones and you listened. They used a click track. And, uh, so you just listen to all of the different, um, this is what the click track sounds like. This is the metronome. This is the cue telling you when you're about to come in. So you just listen to that. The third meeting was you are in the click track. You are plugged in. You have your guitar in there. And uh, 
and you can hear yourself, but no one else can hear you. So you just play along. No one else can hear you. You just play along and you just kind of get used to it. And then your next session, you're actually in and everyone is listening to you. Uh, so I, I went to my first meeting where I plugged in, listened to everyone. And then the pastor of the church decided that he wanted to start a Wednesday night sermon series and he wanted a brand new band. So they didn't, so they weren't like spreading all of their volunteers thin. So I ended up getting plugged into that band was in there for five months before, um, I kind of had some weird feelings about it and switched to a different campus that they, that the church had, uh, where I was allowed to play in the band a total of two times in the entire year that we were there. And that kind of launched up to where I ended my relationship with that particular church. Um, funny thing is that guy, Zach and his songs that he let me listen to, um, his last name is Williams. And the song he let me listen to was called chain breaker. And, uh, it, the album that he recorded went on to win a Grammy and uh, he now lives in Nashville with his family writing music and being known by everybody. So that was kind of a fun story. Uh, I, I will revisit that story in a future episode, but I just wanted to kind of share that one. It was, it was a, a fun moment that I, I got to hear chain breaker before anyone else. Um, but at this other church, this other campus. Um, I don't know what happens. Like, I don't know if the music minister felt like I was after his job or if he felt threatened by me in some way, or if he just genuinely just didn't like me, or if I'm just completely mistaken by the whole thing. Um, but I hit the cage stage right around this time uh, that I mentioned earlier. I, um, became really influenced by certain things. I, I had my eyes opened to certain, what I called at that point in time, heresies, which were really just heterodoxies. A heresy is like damnable by the church and leads people to hell. A heterodoxy just confuses people and may not be as well written or succinctly written as possible. Um, and so I uh, emailed the music minister complaining about certain elements of certain songs, uh, oceans included that I consider that I called heresy. Uh, the fact that it says fear instead of sin, it being a major issue in that song. And, uh, as you would imagine, uh, I did not get taken very well by, by the music minister. He brought the pastor in on it and I got uh, a two on one, what really felt like a church disciplinary hearing where, I was basically told that I was absolutely wrong, that I was completely out of line and that uh, the songs weren't heretical and they weren't wrong at all. And that I needed to basically get over myself. Um, and so I uh, decided at that point in time to step down from being a deacon, from being on the praise team for working in the nursery and uh, joined a Presbyterian church plant. Uh, there was a lot going on behind those scenes as well. What led me to to my cage stage. Uh, oddly enough, one of the things that led me to my cage stage was hearing a podcast called Calvinist Batman and Friends. 
that led me to a website called the Tech Reformation uh, or Slack.TechReformation.com. Uh, you should all go there. It's great. Uh, it led me to um, this guy that I became friends with named Grant Baker. Uh, who? Who? Oh, yeah, that's you. <laughs> and um, and led me to some other resources that kind of helped me to better discern music. And all the while on this website, there's this other guy in particular. His name is David McCookie. It is not spelled like you'd think. Um, he basically, through a series of conversations, convinced me that I was actually Presbyterian. It was one of those very, very rare moments where an internet discussion actually leads to someone changing their opinion. And, uh, so I, I realized that I was a Presbyterian. He told me that I would probably be happy in the PCA as a denomination. And, uh, at that time, like the next week, I met a guy who moved from Atlanta, Georgia to my hometown to plant a PCA church. And, uh, it was, it was incredibly wild. So I joined the church plant, uh, became their worship director, and got some experience under my belt in worship leading. And uh, so basically, my entire plan was to move to Jonesboro to go to a church to get some experience so I could then go to a church plant and lead worship. And so that that's what happened. Basically, just not the way I thought. While being this worship director, I... Uh, there's a song that came out called Reckless Love that I wrote an essay on, uh, posted it on Facebook, and it got a lot of attention. Um, this essay kind of morphed into something more. Uh, it kind of morphed into just different trends that I've seen in music and kind of morphed into all these other ideas. Uh, and I started writing this paper, and it was kind of getting out of hand. And so I contacted my good friend, Grant Baker to help me kind of tone it down. And uh, one day after we were kind of talking about it, I just said, dude, this would be an awesome podcast. And he said immediately, yes, and we will call it a Balm and Gilead. Like he was. <laughs> I mean, that's it's basically how it happened, right? You just immediately responded with, well, and it will be a Balm and Gilead. Yeah, well, you know, that I was sitting on that name a little bit. I got to admit, I mean, basically what happened was that David McCookie's show, one of them, is called uh, The Lightest Form of Flogging. If you haven't listened to it, please do yourself a favor and subscribe. But Yeah, their theme song sucks. In that, they, Sorry, they, I wrote their they theme announced song. that <laughs> their theme song is wonderful. Anyway, it's, it's all right. Uh, I, I love it. Anyway, they were going to miss a week. Um, it was either that one or the other one. Anyway, yeah, it was, it was flogged. Uh, there, there were un- people, uh, like two or three, not like a huge amount, but we're we're saying, oh man, we're going to miss miss this week, and it's like and all their listeners. We gonna have like a fan, uh, a fan show, and I was like, all right, I'll put it together, and half expecting someone to, you know, one other person to take me up on it. Nobody ever did, but I still came up with the idea for uh, balm and Gilead, just a balm as in uh, a balm for the flogging that we all receive on a now semi-weekly 
uh, or 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 biweekly, depending on how you look at that. Yeah. Uh, basis every once every two weeks. Hopefully yeah. that's soon ending and they'll go back to their weekly format. But just in time for us to start posting ours. Right. But anyway. Yeah. That's kind of how the name came about as as far as this particular podcast. But like you were saying earlier, I really like the reference in Jeremiah to that and how there the writer is asking, is there no balm in Gilead? Gilead was known for all these balms and and cures that they could put out, right? Right. They had, I guess, the right makeup of you know, plants and uh, oils and and whatnot that they uh, needed for medicine making. And uh, from what I understand, that was what that is in reference to. Is there no balm in Gilead that's going to mm-hmm. heal this broken heart, these broken hearts of of these people, you know, who are now in exile because of their sin, and it doesn't directly answer that question in Jeremiah. Yeah. And um, he's known as the weeping prophet for a reason. Right. Right. But we do see that in the grand storyline of the Bible, that there is, uh, there is an answer for that. And no, it doesn't ca- come from ball. Uh, 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 it doesn't come from Gilead. It doesn't come from a place. It comes from a person. It comes from, from God himself who came down uh, to save us all from God's wrath and uh, reconcile us to himself. In preparation for the show, I changed my signature on my emails to, is there no bomb in Gilead? Is there no physician there? And uh, I was emailing a, a friend about Rubik's Cubes. And I just said, <laughs> said hey, did you have fun at that, at that convention? And uh, his response was, uh, I actually leave for the convention tomorrow, but I have no idea what you mean by those other two questions. <laughs> so, so I added like a little squiggly line above it so that, that you know that helps. It's, it's something else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah i actually noticed that that when you emailed me most recently and i was like wait what what is he trying to say here like um is he uh, i was like really confused like is it, maybe he's promoting the show who knows yeah, i don't it's, know it's just promoting the show is all it is anyway that's awesome that's awesome so i guess for my part i mean music has always been a part of my history uh like i said i grew up son of a pastor in the Reformed Church in America there in Florida. My mom uh, was heavily involved in a lot of the music ministry in the church throughout the years. Uh, she sometimes would uh, lead choir, lead uh, the bell choir, uh, you know, play piano or violin. And of course, my siblings and I would all kind of take part in all that, right? So throughout school, throughout church, we're involved in choirs and band and things like that went to college, continued playing uh, music, um, like uh, my violin and the symphonette and singing in two choirs uh, while I was there. Uh, And uh, even on into my professional career, I actually worked for a long time at a place called Mutual of Omaha in Omaha, Nebraska there. And people probably don't know this, but they actually have had I don't know if it's still going, but a gospel choir uh, that sang about twice a year that I was also a part of. And I, like all those different types of music, I just really enjoy a wide variety of music and styles and things like that. And I mean, kind of like what we said before, I didn't think too much about what music we sang in church uh, as much as how to do so more competently and 
the question first kind of crossed my mind, though, when our church, in an effort to reach out to the unchurched, launched a second contemporary service. And as the pastor said, I had a very particular take on it, this, to defend it to the hilt. I mean, why wouldn't this be a good thing, right? We're all reaching out to the world. We're trying to bring people in. What is so, you know, what, what would be, be wrong about that? In fact, uh, that, that sounds very noble, very good, right? And for too long, the church had kind of stuck to some of these dusty old hymns, right? Though I, I liked them, and, but I knew I was weird. I knew I was different than most other people. But it just seemed out of tune with a culture far more interested in something a bit more modern. If we wanted to see more young people like me filling the pews, the way to make them feel more at home was through praise courses and guitars, right? Drums. And that's the way it's been. I mean, not just in my corner of the world, but throughout much of American evangelicalism. I mean, fast forward to today and your average church has multiple bands rivaling the talent of any concert opener of my youth. And like you, Brian, I grew up in a home filled with the sounds of Michael Card, Sandy Patty, pumped out by local Christian radio station WRMB, West Palm Beach. And when bands like the Newsboys and Jars of Clay came on the scene, we started listening to a new station, Way FM, uh, which I don't know if you listened to when you were kind of in Georgia and things like that. I think they I, might I have did actually listen to Way FM in Georgia. Yeah, man. I, I mean, I listened to, I don't know if there was their original station or not, but 88.1 uh, there in West Palm Beach uh, played popular music and, you know, it all, all had a great message, right? It was um, back in the day before. Uh, sort of K-Love kind of came in and it was a very local radio station, which I, I liked as well. You know, it was more about the, it was a local Christian radio station uh, as well. So I love this new uh, kind of CCM music that allowed me to be pseudo popular. You know, it wasn't corn smashing pumpkins or smash mouth, but it was something that you didn't have to be completely embarrassed about. Plus, instead of being brought low by that godless garbage, I could remain perfectly pure and pious. So I was, you know, growing up to be a, uh, a wonderful Pharisee. Um, and I, I, I try very hard, you know, uh, to, uh, to do that. So sometime later, I began to dig into my reformational heritage. And along that journey, I discovered first the Helvetic, a podcast, podcast, and through it, the Tech Reformation Slack team. As a result, I began to deconstruct my preconceptions around CCM, worship music, and what worship truly is. Part of this journey led me to see that Pharisaism and how music was one way to support to help me maintain it. And what's surprising to me is that the old battle lines of guitars in the sanctuary or not, hymns or praise and worship, were mere distractions with a veneer of theological weight. And although I'm not 100% sure where that leaves me, I realize now that the issue we must care about is what is true worship? What is meant when Jesus says to the woman at the well that the true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth? And so these are the questions that bring me to the podcast. Brian's thought about this for six years. I've thought about it off and on for, you know, maybe a little bit longer, but not not as deeply, not as thoroughly as, as you have, Brian. So I'm excited to kind of learn through this podcast and I hope to discover and explore worship, how others have approached a topic and obviously what biblical worship ought to be. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I know that our next episode, 
which for you all will be two weeks from now. For us, will be in 30 seconds when we wrap this one up. Um, we're going to talk about um, we're going to talk about what does the Bible say. We're, we're going to really try to lay down this uh, biblical foundation for uh, for why we believe what we believe. We didn't talk too much about specific scripture in this episode. We did a little bit, but we're going to really, really dive in to what the Bible says and uh, and why uh, why we interpret the Bible the way that we do. Um, in a future episode, we're also going to uh, really talk about specifically like what I look for when I'm listening to music and and uh, you know why certain songs rub me certain ways and, and what lines of songs just really stick out to me as something that is a little bit off. Um, and then a few episodes after that, I, we're actually going to take two songs and just really, really like dive deep into what these particular two songs are saying. They both kind of tackle the same issue, but uh, one does it really well from the biblical standpoint. And one, um, one quotes the Marine Corps and never quotes the Bible. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so that, that's kind of what, what we have ahead of us for the next few episodes. And then uh, we're going to have, I think after that, there's going to be four episodes talking just about singing. And then we will really, really dive into um, just these uh, six very specific, uh, very specific criteria that, that I look for. Uh, but for now, uh, this wraps up our first episode. I'm pretty sure it's like two to three times longer than we anticipated. Um, ah. Eh, we'll figure it out. But I just wanted to say in closing <laughs> that uh, this is my story. This is my song. Praising the Savior all the day long. There is a bomb in Gilead to make the wounded listening to the Balm and Gilead podcast. We love hearing from you, so email us at thereis at balmcast.com. We are a part of the Tech Reformation family of podcasts, and you can discuss our show and much more at slack.techreformation.com. We'll see you there. If you enjoyed the Balm and Gilead podcast, please encourage others to listen. We value your feedback So rate, review, and recommend the show in your podcast app of choice. And with that, we'll see you next time on the Balm in Gilead podcast.